right. Welcome, everybody. This is Mark Scott, and we have done it. We have arrived at the final episode of this podcast series. Our 10th episode of the Closer Than You Think podcast on Substack concludes our 10-part series on the book, You Don't Have to Do That. I want to take a moment to thank all of you who have stayed with me through this series. That means a lot to me. This work is very important to me. Both the book and podcast are meant to make Jesus more accessible. I want to help remove any barriers to God's love and grace and truth. So again, thank you for taking this ride with me and supporting this work. The last section of the book is chapter 9, which is entitled From Now On, and The Afterword. The Afterword shares more about my personal story, and we will leave that part for the reader. So if you get the book, you can read that part. So to wrap up this podcast series, we will look at chapter 9 and discuss where to go from here. What is the way forward? Before we dive in, I want to mention the writing process itself for anyone else interested in writing a book or publishing any kind of work. I found the hardest part of this process really to be the emotional part of it. So much self-doubt can creep in, and it ultimately takes courage to put yourself out there in, in this way or in any way like that in a public setting to lay out your personal beliefs and thoughts for the public to judge and critique. What helped me a lot were, of course, lots of prayer. Um, Writing courses in particular, uh, there was a writing course where the presenters were just brutally honest and telling you, you know, kind of get your stuff together mentally and emotionally and understand why you're doing what you're doing. So especially those courses or the material that was raw and real about how difficult the process is, I was challenged to get very clear on why. Why this book? Why me? Why now? I was challenged to get very clear on who, who would benefit from this book, who wouldn't, who is the target audience going to be. Um, Writing goals, especially related to words a day, like just get something down on paper, quote unquote, because it was on computer. But Um, Just getting something down, putting, you know, plodding along and putting something out there, just being committed to output each and every day kept me on track. There are so many times you just don't feel it along the way and being okay with knowing that it is still good to get something out, even when it's not your best, that helps, that helps a lot. And then the biggest part, of course, is the team, friends, family members, a couple of willing critics who are close to you, and then some people with professional skills who are not close to you. It costs. It, it, it costs to have good quality feedback and input, but it's worth it. I hired an editor, shopped publishers, a cover designer, took their expert level ideas seriously. And it's humbling when you think you have a pretty good draft of something and it comes back completely marked up. As I have posted elsewhere, I remember my, my manuscript came back from the editor. She affirmed me with a comment that I had done a good job and there were not many things to correct. I was like, hey, great writing, just had to tweak a couple of things. And I felt good. And then I opened the manuscript and there were 700 recommendations to make it better. 700. You know, the book itself is actually only 168 pages long. (laughs) Uh, And that was just one round of having the work reviewed. So if you're on the fence about trying to publish something yourself, pray about it and be encouraged. It does take a brave step and sacrifice. It's not easy. But if you have a message to share, don't let fear be what keeps you from sharing it. There may be other legitimate factors that make it not the right time right now. 
honestly, and that was true for me for quite a while, but fear is not one of them. The truth is your work will be criticized, it will be misunderstood, and sometimes mischaracterized. It may hurt some people, even if you have no malice and no intent in writing it to hurt anybody. It may cause some to question your faith um, or your knowledge or your devotion. I've definitely encountered that. It will make people look and feel and think about you differently. And the fear of all of that can be overwhelming and keep you from putting yourself out there as it did me for quite a while. I spent too much time trying to figure out a way to avoid all of that, and it only delayed the process. Once I embraced that, it is not about avoiding any judgment or conflict or looking weird, but recognizing that those things are inevitable. Those things are going to happen, and then reflecting if it's still worth it, and then I could move forward. So let's just be real. My book is not for everybody. It's not intended to be for everybody, but some can find healing from it. Some people can find encouragement. Some may see Jesus in a new light that frees them from religious abuse. Some can find freedom, and that makes it worth it. We have distorted and twisted and misrepresented Jesus for way too long, and anything that can show our world and our children that just taking Jesus at his word leads to a much better life is worth it. You know, back at the uh, beginning of this year, January 2nd, 2022, my Facebook post uh, read this. Welcome 2022. Last year, I made a public commitment on social media at the start of the year that I would write and publish a book in 2021. It created instant accountability because I then felt like I had to keep my word since I had put it out there into the world. And guess what? I did. So this year, I have several goals with writing, health, family, etc. But I'm picking one thing to publicly commit to doing holding myself accountable again. The one thing, like writing a book, that I would otherwise say is a good idea for someday and then let it slide off my radar. I have dabbled in podcasting before, but this year I will launch a new one related to similar themes of my book. Why I want to do this is to include other voices and perspectives while giving people practical ways to move forward in their spiritual journey and to hopefully model inclusive conversations where different opinions can be appreciated instead of ridiculed. And of course, to promote my book. I do believe in it. After all, I believe in what I wrote in it. So this journey that you've been on with me is a step in that direction. I did put it out there. I've got the podcast going. The next step, as you can see, I I kind of met part of my goal anyway, is to include other voices and get some other people involved uh, with that process. So that's hopefully going to be the next step and going to take a little bit of time away from this and then hopefully be able to do that part. But thank you again for going on this whole journey with me. Let's go back to our focus now on chapter nine. So chapter nine opens with these words I'm going to share with you from the first couple of pages of the final chapter of the book. It's called Radical Reform and the Right Obsession. I was recently reviewing a course on Christian theology and I was struck by just how uncontroversial my ideas are in the scope of church history. All I have really contended for in this book is a return to Jesus above all else. The earliest Christians were obsessed with this person known as Jesus of Nazareth. They were very clear on how his coming had reoriented everything. Life was about relating to this person over any law or doctrine. The Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed and products of other councils over the centuries mostly came about as debates occurred about the nature of Christ. 
These creeds are lopsided in their disproportionate attention to Jesus Christ over and above everything else. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th century sparked subsequent reformations in subsequent eras. While we bemoan the fact that we have so many denominations, which are the effects of separations over the years, we must appreciate that it was an honest search for the truth most of the time. Whether it was about the presence of Christ in the Eucharist or Lord's Supper, or if we are saved by faith alone or grace alone, or if baptism conveys Christ's salvation actually or symbolically, one can't help but respect that we have been wrestling with what to do with Jesus for a long time. And ultimately, it is the right thing to contemplate. Obviously, we have gone off the rails in destructive ways as we married the church with the state, awkwardly blending two things that don't mix, a gospel of love and grace with empire and domination. In our attempts to make sense of Jesus, we lost sight of his greatest command to love others. Tragically, while we try to show the rest of the world how much we love Jesus, our actions reveal we don't really like Jesus. How one being can be so venerated and so ignored at the same time is what keeps people baffled. We must return to the simplicity of following Jesus and his single greatest command to love. So the need for reformation continues, and radical reformation at that. The word radical actually means of or going to the root. Think fundamental, as in basic or essential. This is the idea that I have in mind when I say we need to reform organized religion. It is about returning to the origin or the first intent. Radical is too often confused with extreme. While some radical innovations may be perceived as extreme, sorry, while some radical innovations may be perceived as extreme, the real questions before us need to be focused on why ways of doing things were created in the first place. Why do we fundamentally, what do we fundamentally hope to accomplish? Will these ways get us there? The definition of reform is to form again the improvement or amendment of what is wrong, corrupt, unsatisfactory, or to change to a better state. Nothing could be a better vision for how we quote-unquote do church than to right the parts that are wrong. This, however, takes the step of identifying what is unsatisfactory in the first place. Radical reform, then, is returning something to its original design or purpose. With the church, that's not easy, but it is simple. It means returning to the first expressions of church, faith, and discipleship under the authority of Jesus Christ. So I have gone through this book and argued many times, you don't have to do that. And even at times argued, you don't have to do anything in terms of earning God's love, God's care, God's grace, uh, by definition. <clears throat> but what I do in the final part of this book is list out what I call the four core. There are four core practices, and I emphasize the word practices because they are actions, they are behaviors. They are not doctrines or belief statements. Uh, they are visible, audible, tangible, in that they produce fruit, and it 
is how we can be measured as followers of Christ. And I understand the irony of giving a plan after arguing that we don't have to do anything. <laughs> and I, um, I go ahead and acknowledge that in the book as well. The point here, though, is that I believe we can uh, reduce things to the irreducible minimums and simplify everything that we're about in following Christ. And I have seen church manuals that are hundreds of pages long. Um, one manual for that I had to operate under was 400 pages, just about. And I think we can reduce all of that down to one page and simplify things. And, and that is where we can have our source of unity, our sense of unity, and we can have diversity in all else. So what are the four areas, the four actions, the four practices that I cover. Number one, pray. So it's pray, go, baptize, teach. Number one is pray. Prayer work is partner work. After listing all the things you don't have to do, I don't see how you can profess faith in someone or follow someone that you refuse to communicate with. So I do believe prayer is essential. Pray was the first one. Second one is go. Basically, serve first, ask questions later. The Bible describes the followers of Jesus as ambassadors, reconcilers, apostles, and servants. Our identity in Christ is as a sent people. Being a Christian is not evident in singing songs or having emotional experiences, although there's nothing wrong with those things, but in displaying the fruit of the Spirit in real-life contexts. Again, displaying the fruit of the Spirit in real-life contexts. It is the evidence. It is the fruit. It is the proof, if you will. <clears throat> this, for some, is a major shift in how we define discipleship. This is how we are known as genuine disciples, according to Christ himself. All other metrics, all other criteria are distractions, whether they are church membership, political views, funds raised, all of that. Those are all distractions <clears throat> to the real work and the real cause that we are about. So we have pray, we have go. The third one is baptize. The significance of this symbolic act is huge. The simple fact is the New Testament's immediate and automatic response to the gospel was baptism. It signifies uniting with Jesus in a new life. Um, I address baptism in other posts on, on Substack and in other places. It's addressed in more detail also in the book. And so I won't belabor the point here, I will just say again, as I've said before, anyone can do it. Anyone can be baptized and anyone can baptize others. And everyone should do it. It should be open. Nobody should think that they're not qualified to do that. Pray, go, baptize, and finally teach. The fourth one is teach. What Jesus made clear is that God's greatest command for us the greatest command for us to obey is to love. Obedience with this understanding in mind is expressed through the fruit of the Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is love. I hope you're seeing a theme here. I'm really emphasizing this point. This love leads to freedom. We are all in process and we all have much to figure out in this life. So waiting until the day of complete knowledge before believing we are ready to teach others doesn't make a lot of sense. 
We don't have to be clever or persuasive. We only have to be genuine and honest. So I want to, uh, so those are the four core practices that I share with you. And then as we're getting ready to close this all out here, another excerpt from the um, book, page 155, in a section called, God is Closer Than You Think. So there you have it. Nothing earth shattering or controversial, I suspect. What you quote unquote must do is converse with God pray, recognize you are sent into the world to serve, go, unite with Jesus in new life, baptize, and obey his command to love, teach. While the words are not new, the reset is huge. None of the religious practices outlined in this book are necessary to genuine faith. There is nothing religious about praying, going, baptizing, and teaching unless we get in the way and make it so. Praying is all about a relationship. Going is all about a relationship. Baptizing is all about a relationship. Teaching is all about a relationship. As I said in the introduction, <clears throat> religion is the toy you can leave behind. It is heavy baggage that you don't need for this trip. The Great Commission teaches us transformational truth both implicitly in the reframing of these core practices and expl explicitly in Jesus' direct words. The last words we have recorded of Jesus convey we don't need all the religious systems and structures to find God. No, his good news was and is that God has always been closer than you think. Hence the name of the blog and the pat and the podcast. That's where it comes from. <clears throat> I contend on the last pages of the book that God is for you, that God is for everybody, and that is a paradigm shift for some people. As you can see, I put so much emphasis on the fruit of the Spirit as the true mark of discipleship. I base that on the words of Jesus himself. It is how we know God is for us, and it's how he wants us to treat others. The theme of the book is contrasting religion with the way of Jesus, hence the title, You Don't Have to Do That, and the subtitle, Moving Past What is Wrong with Religion to Embrace What is Right with Jesus. I'll leave you with this final thought, which I include in, towards the end of the book, and it has been my experience. Religion is tapping God on the shoulder, trying to get him to turn around and give you his attention. Faith is realizing he already has. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day.